So over to you, Brenda. All right. Good uh, evening, good afternoon, depending on what time zone you are. My name is Brenda and I am an alcoholic. I want to thank the trusted servants of this meeting for giving me the privilege to come and share my story, my biography, how I got here, what happened, what it was like, and what my life is like today. Um, I am really grateful for the new year, um, an opportunity to hit control, alt, delete, and do some things over, better, longer. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm very, very committed to the notion that we only have access to 24 hours. And as the alcoholic, that's what saved me. Uh, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous on August the 5th, 1986. I came uh, through, a, um, in Los Angeles, there was the Alano Club, the Crenshaw Alano Club. And that's where I had my first experience of stepping into the 12-step village and having the 12-step experience. And so for that, I'm truly, truly grateful. So again, I just want to tell you a little bit about why and how I got here. Oh my goodness. And this is, you know, this is a pretty short biography because um, I've actually been sober longer than I was. Um, than the number of years I had been on the planet. So I, I came here when I was 32 and I've been sober for 35 years. So I've actually lived in the village of Alcoholics Anonymous longer than I lived uh, in the streets and bars and hotels and all the various places that I drank in Los Angeles. And for that, I'm still surprised. Anyway, so I come from... Um, I was talking to a friend of mine this morning and we were talking about grandmothers. My grandmother had a huge influence on me. My grandmother was the bestest, most funnest alcoholic you ever wanted to meet. My grandmother um, was what we call today a nanny, right? And she would work Monday through Friday and she was able to modify her drinking. Monday through Friday, she didn't, she, she worked, she didn't drink, but oh my God, come Friday night, it was my job to go to the local store, the little store on the corner and get her a fifth of wild turkey. If some of you guys don't know what that is, that's bourbon and a pack of, Bob will remember them, camel cigarettes. <laughs> And it was my job to go and usher and she would go into the kitchen guys and she would drink and she always drank with a coffee cup. So she always had her bourbon in a coffee cup and she would start drink, drinking and cooking. And so the house would be full of these really wonderful, uh, the aroma of her cooking, all of the Southern dishes that, that we grew up enjoying. And, and as she drank, it was like she morphed into a different person. 
and there was always energy in the house. And through the week, we couldn't have company, but good God, on Friday, everybody in the neighborhood could come. And, and, and my grandmother would put all of the drunk, you know, the drunk that sit behind the, the liquor store in the neighborhood. Those were her friends on the weekend. Now, through the week, she didn't even talk to them. But on the weekends, she would bring them to the house and they would wash windows and they would do all this stuff and she would feed them and she would drink with them. And the house was a party, party, party. So as a little kid, I found a lot of um, comfort in that. I found a lot of, I was addicted to the drama and the chaos and the confusion that all of that brought. And, and honestly, that was one of the things that showed up on my inventory that not only was I addicted to the substance, the alcohol, that mind altering substance, whatever it was, I was addicted to the drama, the chaos, the confusion that went on when you were in a bar and you were drunk. I love that shit. And it started for me at a very young age. My very, and I always share this because it is fascinating to me, okay? That when I was about, I don't know, five, six, before I was in double digits, I remember being a very young child and my mother was, um, a teenager. So my mother had me when she was 17, 18 years old. And so my grandmother was this alcoholic raising a rebellious 17 year old uh, with a kid. And she was trying to put structure as best she could. Uh, and so there was always this tension in the house. There was always this underlying, you guys know that tension when you walk into the space and you don't really know what's going on, but you know, something's a little bit off. And, and that used to really give me this, this feeling of, um, what our book refers to as discontent, restless, irritable discontent. I felt that when I was five. But what I would do is I would go to the backyard where there was this really beautiful, mature avocado tree. And I found a great deal of pleasure turning around and doing physical, you know, handstands and jump rope and turning around really fast in circles and getting that head rush that comes with that kind of activity as a child. And I continued to seek that. The next place I sought it was in nicotine because I would see my mother, she would, she would light up a cigarette, a Tarrington, and she would, and she would literally, I could see her body calming down. So I remember thinking, hmm, I'm gonna do that. So the very next substance that gave me that ease and comfort was tobacco. And I remember clearly being about 11 and, and sneaking me a, a, <laughs> a mug full of wild turkey. And that, and that started my journey with alcoholism because again, it gave me that sense of ease and comfort. And even now, guys, 35 years later, that is something that stu has stuck with me, that, that Dr. Silkworth says that, that I'm restless, irritable, and discontent until I can again feel the ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Now, I'll be honest with you, I still seek ease and comfort, but now it's kind of like at the mall and in the refrigerator. But I still have that that restless, irritable, I call it my 20%. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak about that a little bit later. But, but coming up in my neighborhood in South Central Los Angeles, look guys, it just wasn't that big a deal to drink a little wine and smoke a little weed. It just was kind of the culture, right? And alcohol worked for me until it didn't work. 
it it gave me that sense of of you know that feeling that you have in your the that butterfly feeling that you get. I walked around feeling like that for thirty years, and the only time I didn't feel like that was when I was drinking. So alcohol was the solution to my living problem, as is alluded to in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and so I came here with some real reservations about whether this would work for me. I came here and I, I looked at step one and I understood life unmanageable because by then I'm living on my mother's couch. I'm making some really bad decisions and my life is not in the space where I thought it would be because I'm a pretty smart girl. You know, I know how to do some stuff. But the one thing I could never figure out was why I continued to drink when I didn't want to. Why was it that I would sit at my desk on a Friday or a Thursday with a paycheck in my hand and the negotiation that is referred to in step two, that insanity would begin. Okay, you know what, you don't need to drink. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the clear liquor, you know, in chapter three, more, it talks about, we switch up. So I would have this negotiation. Oh, well, that, I really shouldn't hang out with those people on that side of town. It's the vodka. It's the, it's the clear liquids, liquids that met. I need to stick to wine. I need to stick to, you know, things that, that are sippable. Cause see, vodka was, you know, you just bang it down and bourbon. You kind of had to, you know, you had to kind of sip a little bit of uh, Remy Martin, you know, it, it was, it was the negotiation that happened in my sober mind. My sponsor early on said, Brenda, every time you made a decision to drink, you were sober. That's the insanity of step two. But when I looked at that first step, I was clear that my life was unmanageable. But I really struggled with this notion that I was powerless. And, it was, and that's why the doctor's opinion gave me such um, direction and gave me such, uh, so much information that allowed me to see that my alcoholism, the thinking associated with my alcoholism, you know, where it talks about being in full flight from reality. I don't know about any of you guys, a show of hands, how many of you guys made up stories about your life because you didn't like your life? I did that shit all the time. I had a life that was all in my thinking. And, and, and I came to this program so broken that I would lie when the truth was a better option. Because I had what, what the doctor's opinion refers to as this inability to see the truth. And it wasn't that I didn't want to, it's that I was incapable of seeing it. And that, that notion of being powerless meant that there was no human power. So I couldn't get the right boyfriend. I couldn't drive the right car. I couldn't have the right job. I couldn't uh, live in the right, under the right conditions. I couldn't have enough money in the bank to solve the problem. That was really kind of depressing. And there's a line in the book that says that we are doomed, that alcohol has rendered us completely incapable of making a decision. And if you're new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, any newcomers, I want to take a moment to stop and welcome you to, 
to the village, welcome you to a new way of life, welcome you to what our book defines as a design for living. And I want to welcome you to that experience because not only do you get to design your life, you actually get to understand the art of living. And what I mean by that is, you know, I like I, I like art, and we we hire artists to put to 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 uh, create art for us. And and the first thing they do is they do the design, but the piece begins to come alive when they add the depth and the color and and the nuances. That's what this program has done for me. It gave me this design, and then it gave me these spiritual principles that really allow me to add those nuances and that color to my life. My life is relatively calm and boring on purpose. I, I made a decision. I, I'd like to, I, I wanted to read something that I wanted to speak to because I was reading it this morning and it just kind of struck me. It talked about, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured from alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on, our, on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. That's where I am in my life today, because I believe that alcohol uh, alcoholism, that thinking is just lying dormant in me. Why do I believe that? I believe that because I'm going to tell you a story. Picture it. 26 years sober. I worked as a human resources professional for a pharmaceutical company. And, and we used to do these wonderful programs where we would go and acquire a company and HR would come in and they would, and they would, they would manage the process. And so we had done some really wonderful work, this team that I was on. And so they wanted to reward us. And so we were given uh, a sort of a banquet time, you know, awards and money. And it was just really awesome. So we're downtown Chicago. And we're in this beautiful building, beautiful hotel with chandeliers and 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 ladies. I had on the I, I, I was red carpet ready. You guys know what that means, right? I, I had on the Mac makeup. I had the suit. The hair was done. I, look, no Kardashian had anything on me that night. OK, I was I was that girl. And I walk into this space, this beautiful ballroom and the chandeliers are just spectacular. And what's going on is there's a, a waiter walking around with trays or flutes of champagne. And the champagne um, is bouncing off, the, 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 the crystal of the glass is bouncing off the, the, the chandeliers and it looks really sexy. I mean, it's colors and, and the bubbles and, 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 and there's fruit at the bottom. And I was like, huh. And I, I was standing tall and alcoholism said, you can have a glass of champagne. How bad could it be? There's fruit at the bottom. I heard that. It was clear. It was, it was like you were stand, like Bob was standing next to me telling me that. It was, it was definitive. I was 27 years sober. 
So I was the cutest lady at the AA meeting that night because what did I do? I went and I called the hotline and they came and got my my carpet red ready ass and brought me to an AA meeting because that's what we do in the village. I found my village. I found my people. I found people that said that say yes, we're gonna love you even when you're not lovable. The steps are alive. If you're new and you're and you're working through this process, understand that there was an energy in this for me. It was an experience that was palatable. I still remember sitting on a park bench with my sponsor, my, my sponsor, my late sponsor, Richard, having, uh, and I was maybe, I don't know, 90 days in, not quite six months. And I had this piece of paper and I had my hit list. I had all the people that had fucked over me on this list and I was pissed. And I remember reading him this and talking about all of the things they had done to me. And I was animated and I was still mad, which is how you know it's a resentment because I was as pissed off as I was when it should happen. And he sat there with me patiently. And it wasn't a pretty scene because I'm a, I, I, those of you that know me, I'm five, 10 and a half, so I'm a big girl. And, and he was sitting on the park bench and, and he continued to take me to that fourth column, right? To ask me, what should I have done? What could I have done? Why did I make that decision? And it pissed me off. And I was like, well, you don't understand. And, and I was flailing my arms around. And, and the man that he was, he sat there and he said, okay, who's next? Who's next? And we went down this list and it was exhausting because I had principles. I had institute. I did not want to pay internal revenue, but shit, I don't want to pay internal revenue today. So that's something that I have just turned over to the care of God. But I had all of these principles and people that I really felt had victimized me. And I left that park bench uh, with a list of people that I needed to make amends to, financial amends, people that I needed to pay back because I had manipulated them out of money, things that were that were were palatable. It had an energy. In fact, the book gave instructions. I remember Richard saying, go home and you know, consider what we've done. And he read the instructions in the book. And, and I and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna do Shh. I went home and went to sleep because it drained me. And, and the next morning, I remember getting up and, and thinking about what I had just experienced and really having, first of all, I had a little bit of, um, there was some anticipation, but there was also still some fear. And I had, and I had three, uh, three very distinct, what I call buckets. The first bucket were the people that I wanted to restore those relationships, my mother, my sisters, my siblings. I wanted to, and I was ready to, and I, and I did pretty relatively quickly. But then there was this second secondary list, you know, the list that, oh, well, if I, if I have to, if the, if the opportunity presents itself, oh, I, I'm kind of willing. I had a willingness, right? And then I had this last bucket, and that was my fuck it bucket. I ain't doing it. You can't make me. My father was on that. There were some people that I just felt didn't deserve my forgiveness. Now, remember, I'm six months sober, so I think that, you know, their forg my forgiveness is going to make them better people, right? 
So the wonderful, and the reason I say these steps are alive is because when I got through with the first bucket, the second bucket replaced the first bucket. And then the third bucket replaced the second bucket. And in about six months, I was done. I was done and I was free. I was liberated. All of my secrets had been revealed. I talked about the molestation. I forgave the man who, who, who abused me as a child. I forgave the people that didn't protect me as a child. I was able to let it go. But guess what? The wonderful thing about the man who sponsored me and the wonderful thing that I think really gives us freedom, and I read it, we get a daily reprieve. I cannot be spiritual for next Thursday. I don't have access to next Thursday. I get to be in this wonderful, elegant moment where the spirit is in this moment. And so I can forgive in this moment. Now I had, you know, some of those resentments, they would, you know, when I wrote the check to internal revenue, I'd be like, oh, Oh, it was it, at one point it was painful because it was so it was so uh, contrary to what I was accustomed to. I was accustomed to taking your money and not paying you back. So when I had to pay people back, it was painful. Again, it was a lie. I had a visceral reaction to working the steps, going to talk to people that I had completely treated badly. I remember going to an ex-boyfriend, forgiving him for beating me up. And he reminded me that every time he hit me, it was because I hit him first. Because see, I'm a mean drunk and I will, I will, I will hurt you with my hands if, if, I, if, if I'm drunk enough. But my version of that story was that he was the abuser when in fact, I, I always kind of did that. And again, the aliveness of this process to sit down with another human being and say, huh, you know what? I'm, I'm really working on being better. But I want to go back to step six and seven. You know, leaving that park bench and going, going and, and spending that time, that, that, that time with, with spirit was um, really kind of... Um, like a seesaw for me, because I had issues and I, I hadn't yet differentiated religion from spirituality. So my first um, experience with that was really uncomfortable. And one of the best things that happened to me in the last 15 years of being in the Alcoholics Anonymous program is coming to terms with the fact that Spiritual principles are what I believe in. I believe in leaning into things like hope and courage and faith and being authentic, being to thine own self, Brenda, be true. The first 10 years around here was just getting the knowledge, understanding how this was relevant. Why, why, why did I need to continue to seek this conscious contact with God. The second 10 years was really about this separation and seeking and believing that, 
I was going to be better if I had the good job, the right bank account, the right man, blah, 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 blah. And so I spent a decade in that, the pursuit of that. And then one day I, again, after that experience in Chicago, I came home and I, I sat on the side of the bed and, and I realized that I had stopped pursuing the conscious contact. I was in my head with a narrative that explained what I believed, but I wasn't living what I believed. And that took me down a whole nother road with a whole different experience with this whole understanding that spiritual principles, these, the, 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 that for me, either I'm in fear or I'm in love. And when I'm in fear, I'm in my 20%. My 20%, look, guys, I, I'm pretty consistent with doing some of the practices that I do in my life. I'm pretty consistent with step 11. I am because I work at it and I'm retired. So I have time to, I can, I can structure my day around it. Right. So I'm really pretty good at it and it's paid off. 20% of the time, I'm a stark raving maniac who goes off on my husband because he had the nerve to get out of the bathtub and not clean it. And I mean, I had a full on meltdown. Okay. And, you know, bless his heart, he's a member of the fellowship. So he looked at me and said, okay, 12 stepper, I hear you. And he just went on about his business, which is what we do. The book tells us to pause. And, and I've learned to pivot. I've learned to, to hear my thinking and to realize that this disease centers in my thinking. And as I've learned to observe my thinking and see the, 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 the disconnection between a spiritual principle, as I've learned to do that with some consistency, I'm, I'm living in, uh, I don't take myself too seriously. I realize that the last thing that I can do is change your personality. My version of the serenity prayer guy says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change. The courage to change the person that I can and the wisdom to know that person is Brenda. And the more I've come to understand that I don't have to defend my decisions about my life. And I and you don't have to defend your decisions to me. I, I sponsor women, I always have. It's one of the joys of my life. And those relationships are very dear to me, but they're very much the relationship that Oprah Winfrey described a relationship that she had with Maya Angelou. And it was so, uh, it was so touching to me because she said that they had a mother-sister-friend relationship. And the mother in me and, uh, connects with women to simply remind them of what they say they wanted, what they committed to, that they made a decision to turn their will and life over to the care of God, not me. And, and to be that sister who defends them and, and will not hear really any negative feedback about them because that's what a sister does. And, and that friend that, that holds that confidence and does not share, that, that keeps those secrets. And, and, the, and that kind of relationship with these women that privileged me, honestly, to be uh, on this journey with them is very um, 
it's very comfortable for me. It's, it's the, we have these opportunities where they're telling me stuff and I've had more, more often than not, I've been talking to someone and, and I would hear these words come out of my mouth and I'd be like, well, that must be God because I didn't know that. Stay around here long enough for, for something to speak through you. It's a really interesting experience because you know you might want to take credit for it, and I have wanted to take credit for it, but in, in my quiet time, I knew that it wasn't me because I didn't know that. My life today is one, like I said, I've retired from the corporate um, experience, and so I kind of started my own little company, but, but what I enjoy more than anything else is this notion of being of service to the to my community, to my family, and to the the people in the village. I, I believe myself to be um, someone that has developed the skill of listening, uh, and so I get a lot of pleasure out of being a resource for people to find the answers to their problems. I don't carry the answers to your problem. I believe that. The book tells me that deep down in every man, there's a fundamental knowledge of God. And I believe that all of, all of the solutions to all of your problems have been, have been planted within you. And that this process is this bestest tool ever to help you access those solutions to your problems. And the process is so powerful that it will it will help you see that a lot of times you've decided or I've decided that something's not a problem, that something is a problem rather when it really is not. Or my most recent undertaking and discovery was that if I was dealing with problems that were not my problems to solve. I have niece, what I call niece daughters and they're adult women. And it finally dawned on me, I can, I can, you know, I don't have to be the actor in their drama. I can be in the front row watching. What liberation that was for me, right? I don't have to solve anyone's problems. It's not my responsibility. You see, because I don't live with the consequences of your decision, you do. What liberation that was for me. So my life is very, um, I'm trying to think of one word that could sum it up, but in the word that comes to mind, it, it, that I have a life that's very deliberate. Um, I, I love the fact that I am um, available when I choose to be available and not available when I choose not to be available. And I really, again, I, I, I love sponsorship, but I realize I'm just a reminder. Most of the women that call me and they're, and, they're, and they're stuck, they already have the answers. I'm just there to remind them of what they already know. And I get a lot of pleasure out of that because in reminding them, I'm also reminding myself. Um, I am just so, so grateful for my life. I am grateful that people like you have an interest in hearing what I have to say. I'm grateful that I am a person who understands what it means to have a daily reprieve based on my spiritual maintenance. And I don't make this 
um, too hard for myself. I've learned to forgive myself. I've learned that I don't have to be perfect. I learned that my 20% is my 20%, but I don't focus on my 20%. I focus on the 80%. That works best for me. I live a life of intention and deliberation. I love what page 85 says when it talks about step 11. It talks about, um, uh, I want to read it because it, it's, it's so yummy. Uh, yeah, I love the book. The book is yummy and I don't apologize for that. Um, it says that, uh, wrong page. It says upon awakening, we look at the 24 hours ahead. Again, I don't have access to next Friday. I only have access to 24 hours. And it says that throughout the day, I direct my thinking my thinking, asking to be divorced from self-pity, dishonesty, and self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, I can employ my mental faculties with assurance. After all, God gave me my brain to use. How yummy is that? <laughs> I love that. So I am happy. I am joyous. I have found freedom. Um, and I am comfortable following the instructions in this book. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't read other books because I certainly believe that there are other teachers out there and other people that have things that, that help me direct my thinking. And I'm very open to that. But the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is the book that started me on the path. And I know that many women need to start on the path taking baby steps like I did because I was molested in the church. So the re religious experience didn't really work for me. But Alcoholics Anonymous told me that I could come here and I could have an experience that, that and I could have a relationship with God that didn't have anything to do with religion or religious doctrine. That has liberated me. So if you're new to this fellowship, I'd like to really, really, I'm going to do a, what the book calls um, frothy emotional appeal. I'm going to appeal to you to stay with us. I'm going to appeal to you to, to look at these steps, to realize that the first three steps are two conclusions and one decision. And then you make that decision and you go into that scary territory of self-assessment and it's not like you don't know. I mean, the, the, the reality it is, most of us, if you, if you put your hand to the side, we've got peripheral vision and you know that the shit's over there. The fourth step just puts it right here in front of your face and it allows you to look at it. But guess what? You don't have to do it by yourself. You don't have to do it alone. And each step, again, they're so alive and they're so vibrant and they're so, so very elegant that each step prepares you for the next one. And that's been my experience with the 12 steps and, and this ongoing experience and, and, and looking, constantly taking a deeper look at what the hell were you thinking, Brenda? Why did you say that? What were you scared of? That didn't come from a loving place. I went on a diet, a divorced, I divorced myself from thinking negative stuff about people. What a great diet that was. So I think my time is probably up. And even if it isn't, I think I'm done talking because when you're done talking, you should shut up, right? <laughs>
but I do want to extend my love and my my uh, wish that all of you should have a wonderful, happy, happy, happy uh, 2022, and that you get the desires of your heart, and that all of your dreams are right at your fingertips. And I want to say that the spirit in me honors the spirit in you. I know it's there. And I love you for it. And I thank you so much for being a part of the village that I am also a part of. And, and thank you for supporting me and allowing me to be of service this afternoon. Namaste. Thank you. <laughs>